0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: In all his years of wandering through Red Hook, Cree has rarely ventured into Bone's Manor. The large lot, a former truck-loading zone, is hidden behind a patchwork of corrugated iron fence that runs the length of the entire block. It's a no-man's land for junkies, hookers, and other red-hook irregulars. The concrete walls on the lot's waterside are famed for their graffiti, the dopest pieces in the neighborhood, it's rumored. Sometimes the lot is empty. Sometimes it feels as if the whole damn city is thriving back there. But no matter how crowded the manor seems, it has always felt to Cree like the loneliest place on earth. Nature is out to reclaim Bones' manor and turn it into some sort of inner-city wetlands. A large pond of water, which the residents of the manor call the lake, rises and falls with the tides from Erie Basin. People in the manor make their homes in abandoned shipping containers or the shells of old cars pushed up against the sides of the lot, all sorts of jerry-rigged shelters into which they can disappear in a flash. There's a ghostliness to the way the wind whips from the water and gets trapped inside the place, rattling the corrugated walls, agitating the reeds, and rippling the surface of the lake.
0: Ivy Pakoda is the author of The Art of Disappearing, Her new novel from Dennis Lehane Books is Visitation Street. Thank you for joining me, Ivy.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This is a beautifully evoked novel of place, and the place is Red Hook, New York. My first experience with Red Hook, New York was reading a story by H.P. Lovecraft, the horror of Red Hook. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Talk about your time in Red Hook and evoking the feeling of place that you do so well in this novel.
1: Well, Red Hook in Brooklyn, it's an isolated waterfront community. And the reason it's so different from the rest of Brooklyn is that it has water on three sides. And on the fourth side is the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, which Robert Moses built or had built in the 40s as a way to make traffic flow through New York better. But the Downside of that was that it cut off Red Hook from the rest of the borough. So public transportation was very difficult there. There's a bus that goes in and out. There used to be two, but they got rid of one. The nearest subway is about a mile and a half walk, and it is actually not a subway that most people care to walk to. You have to walk through the housing projects. It's not really... A viable way for a lot of people to get to work. So it is a strange place and it has a very strange feeling because there's lots of water and there's lots of abandoned buildings. And I moved there in 2005, right before the gentrification boom hit Red Hook, though it didn't hit it very hard as it turned out. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it felt like a fishing village to me in many ways. There were seagulls and cobblestone streets and all sorts of strange businesses would pop up in these old, kind of like seamen shanty shacks that were left over from, you know, the shipping, the days when it was a massive shipping port. You know, the eighteen, late 1800s Civil War time. You know, to I guess the fifties is when the docks started to decline. So when I started to write, I didn't necessarily start to write a mystery or start to write anything with a noir or ghostly feeling, but that's just sort of the language that came out of you know trying to describe what I saw on the streets every day. Though I did grow up in Brooklyn, um, not too far from Red Hook. So a lot of the experiences, especially the younger characters, are drawn from my experiences of being a hot, bored teenager in the summer.
0: One of the things I think that Is so compelling about this book is your prose style. I'd like you to talk about creating that prose style. Did that just does that just happen when you sit down to write?
1: Pretty much. (laughs) I don't really think about you know trying to. I don't really like fine or complicated writing, but I like precise writing and I like writing that sort of stands out. So you know, there's so many ways to describe something, and I really. Strive to make my words my own and to make them different from the way other people would look at a situation. What I really try to do in this book is because it's told from different perspectives, is to in you know in the chapter that's told from a young girl's perspective use prose that might mirror her inner world, and then in a character of a, in when we switch to an older sort of alcoholic character use the prose, not just the dialogue, to, you know, show his disillusionment with the world. So I guess I did really try to create different voices in the prose, not just in the dialogue.
0: Well, Ed, that kind of comes across, but also your choice of words kind of tangles this all together in this great web. It's really fun to read this book. And I'm wondering, when you started writing it, did you know where it was going to go?
1: Not at all. I mean, you know, my first goal in writing this book when I started was just to write about Red Hook, and I didn't really have a plot or a story in mind, and I just started writing about people I saw in the neighborhood, people I knew. I wasn't really writing about them. I used their you know, physical appearance and sort of their job or designation in the neighborhood, not necessarily their behavior. And I wrote a couple different chapters about different characters, people I saw, and then I... Figured that, you know, after having eight chapters, we might need a story. Um, and I realized I already had it. I just didn't know what it was because I had written the opening chapter about the girls on the raft, which is became the backbone for the book. Um, once I figured that out, I realized I had a story, which was what happens after these girls go on the raft trip. But it took me a while to realize that was what was going to tie this community together.
0: It it really interests me that at the heart of both your first book and this book is disappearances. And I think that this is a really interesting phenomenon. I think we're finding ourselves more and more interested in that and want to know about it because when somebody disappears, it seems like an almost magical act in our life because when they're gone, they're just gone and we don't have that explanation. So it it leaves that kind of open question.
1: You know, I think I've thought about this recently quite a bit because people ask me, you know, did you do you know someone who disappeared, or you know where where does that interest come from? And I used to travel a lot because I played squash professionally, and it would take me to the strangest places, you know, small towns in Finland or you know towns in Norway you've never heard of, places I couldn't even find on the map in France or in, in Germany. I mean, I went to a town where I, it wasn't on the map. When I was traveling, it was before cell phones, you know, when I was doing this before the cell phone was prevalent, and I always thought about nobody knows where I am. My parents don't know where I am and what would happen? And I love the feeling of being somewhere that was kind of nowhere. You know, this sort of transitional, you know, driving through the Autobahn in the dark, looking for the small village and the sense that I could just, no one knows where I am and I could just vanish and nobody would know, they would figure it out eventually. But the idea that, and I feel that that's something that's almost lost now just with all of the communication and data and surveillance. So I think the idea of disappearance is really yeah, you're right, it is magical and it's unique and it's increasingly difficult. But it does leave this strange hole behind because it's sort of an unsatisfied event. Like, it's not like disappearance and then we know there's a body or we know, you know, she ran away to Russia. It's just, I think it's uh, w- would leave a lot of questions behind that I, you know, I tried to answer. <laughs> uh,
0: one of the things that struck me, too, about both your books is you have a very practical approach to the... to. They both include some elements of the fantastic, and you, but you have a very very practical approach to that, and I really really love that, and and I'd like you to talk about how you develop that in your work and how and how you bring it out in plot and in prose.
1: So I think you know some writers love magical realism, and I I, I like to read it, but I don't like. When things can spin out of control. And I like, a, a, a practical is a great word. I wouldn't have thought of that myself. I like when the inexplicable follows certain rules. And, um, you know, in this book, there are some elements of the spiritual or the supernatural, but, you know, it's really open to interpretation. And I wanted to leave it open. You know, I am not going to say or tell anyone definitively whether the things that might be strange or paranormal actually happen. That is for the reader or to decide. I really like to hem in like I like to hem in magical realism. I like to give it a purpose or to give it just a little bit of grounding in reality. And I love things. I love the idea that there's things in the world that can't be explained. And I would love to believe in ghosts. I actually don't, but I love to use these sort of hints of you know something besides the normal in my fiction, it really appeals to me. And I never intend to do it, and suddenly it pops up. So I guess it's something that I kind of wish was in my own world. So I guess the best next best thing to do is write about it.
0: A writer who dealt quite a bit in the fantastic, a guy named Robert Aikman. Uh, his his take was. I'm just I'm there's no elements of the fantastic. This is how I experience the world. And I think that to a degree a lot of us do have you know, we things that come into us come in through so many filters and so many perceptions, so many layers of personality, and all the accumulation of our past really changes the way we see what's happening in the present to a degree where two people who have very different pasts can look at the same thing and see something very different.
1: I'm really um, impressed and jealous of his interpretation of his own work. That sounds great. I think that it's absolutely right, you know, who's to say which is the right way to see the world and which is wrong, you know. I think that, you know, being so close-minded towards other non-natural phenomena or just—I lived for a while in James Merrill's house. um, And James Merrill, the poet, he was really into spirituality and spirits and ghosts and stuff. And everyone would ask me, oh, did you see the ghosts in the Merrill house? You know, everyone lives in the Merrill house, sees ghosts. And I think it's that collective seeing of ghosts, that collective feeling that creates that environment— But there is something there that I remained open to in that that I just can't quite explain to anybody a feeling that I got there. So I think it's a really personal decision and something that's hard to talk about without trying to without sounding loopy.
0: Well, I can say that I I can say a. Affirmatively, I can say with absolute certainty that I am completely haunted by many of the mistakes I have made in my life. I don't need the spirits of the dead to haunt me. I'm dragging behind my own ghosts. And I think that happens a lot in Visitation Street.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I think I'm also haunted by lots of bad decisions I made. And I think the character of Jonathan, the music teacher who's had you know his own troubles, is for me the most representative representational of who I am. You know, I'm there are all these awful moments where you you can see yourself making a terrible decision and you know how that could affect you later on and I think a lot of my characters do have not just regrets but just these horrible decisions that they're chained to and I think that's you know something that I've Think deal with it on a daily basis, and you know, luckily I've pulled myself out of it and written a book. But there are moments that I can point to in my life where I think, "Man, I'm so embarrassed or horrified by this massive—and I mean massive—mistake I made." You know that. So um, I'm glad that came across, and it's even something that I—I I burdened the younger characters with. <laughs> they're, they're not going to pass through life unscathed.
0: Well, one of the things I think that's so incredible about this book that is the way you ratchet up the tension by keeping the character arcs, the, the way the characters change. We meet somebody and think, okay, we've got our hands around this character. And then as we see more, we think, no, we do not. And I love the way you do that. And I'm wondering how much of that you had to tweeze after you wrote the book.
1: Um, You know, I didn't set out initially to write a mystery. Um, I had the girls on the raft and the tragedy that befalls them. But I really wanted to write um, more of a study of the neighborhood and the community and different people in it. So I really focused more on characters and the surprises they might have in store for one another. So I didn't really tweak it after the book, after I finished and, you know, resolved whatever happens um, on the raft. That I was much more interested in the reaction the interaction between these people so that was the for me what I was really writing towards was those sort of strange and surprising revelations.
0: Well, I just love the all these characters. That's one of the things about this book and, and and it's important in books that we have to want to be with the characters. And I wanted to be with every character in this book, no matter who you are writing about. So let's talk a little bit about them. We have, we meet at the beginning, uh June Giotto and Val Marino. They're two young, preteen, almost teen girls. And this is a very interesting time of life that you capture because they're kind of on opposite sides of the gap.
1: Well, they're actually 15, so they are firmly teenagers. And um, Val and June represent two sides of my personality. For a lot of girls, they are rep- they represent bu- friendships they've been in. Uh, girls are tough, and I've been in friendships where I've been the one who wanted to, like, June, move fast, get beer, get vodka, kiss boys, smoke cigarettes, you know, leave my friend behind who just wanted to, you know, sit at home and, you know, watch – TV or play make believe. And I've also been in relationships with really good childhood friends where I just couldn't believe how fast my friends were moving. And I felt so left out and so isolated because I wanted to hold on to childhood. And I felt really guilty about being the first friend that I described, the one who wanted to move fast. But, you know, everyone has to grow up at some point, not necessarily do bad things. but So these girls, this moment that I was trying to portray between them is something that I really struggled with both sides of in my childhood. You know, I just wanted to capture that moment where you realize your friendship, the one that you've had since almost birth, is not gonna last forever. And I think that's something so many people go through. I mean, I had a best friend from you know fifth grade to eighth grade, and it was just pretty clear that this wasn't going to work out for us. And it's a horrible feeling. And it's really, really a stressful time for girls, I think. And I really wanted to get across that that fraught moment where you realize that you're just this thing you've built for 12 years is crumbling.
0: It's it's superbly well done and really immersive. Uh, And what's nice is that you capture these personalities. At the same time, you also weave them into... The place, Red Hook, and that's just as much a character as anybody else in this book, presumably maybe the main character of the book.
1: Definitely. I think, you know, Red Hook is um, it, it, it's a great way to—because it's this isolated community and because— People who are, or at least the characters in my book, who are in Red Hook feel trapped for various reasons. You know, June and Val, they grew up in Red Hook. They don't quite have access to New York the way other teenagers might. It has been, It's such a big part of their lives, this isolation in Red Hook. You know, June wants to move out, move on, go to the city. Val sort of still clinging to, like, the magical waterfront community of Red Hook. So Red Hook was a really great way to explore all my characters, you know, problems or their frustrations or their ambitions or their lack of ambitions. And it's such a visceral and strange place that, you know, it was my primary interest when I sat down to write was to write about Red Hook. And I had to obviously use people to describe it because a book about a place without characters would be challenging, to say the least. But um, I'm glad to hear that people really respond to Hick as a character because I feel it has a personality and it has moods and it's troubling and it's also really rewarding.
0: Well, I would be happy to see more books set in, in this in this setting. Uh, on the other side of the divide, we have Cree. His name is Accretius really. And I'm yeah. wondering where you plucked that name from.
1: Well... If you want to hear the real story, one of these friendships that I had as a child, where suddenly my friend was accelerating beyond me, we had went to a party at her house. She had an older sister who was a bad girl, and her older sister was a senior in high school. I was in eighth grade, and she had two friends come to this party and spend the night. And their names were Aloysius and Acratis, and it was the first time I ever drank, and. It left such a huge impression upon me, and I just didn't really understand what was going on and they kept giving me you know vodka and cranberry juice and but i the a guy named acretius he was this big burly african American football player, and he was so nice to me, and he took care of me and I was this little kid at this party, so the name just really stuck in my head
0: i, I well, he is a great character, and I love the setting where we see him out in the boat on the, in the middle of the weeds. That's just such a great scene. Uh, talk about creating that scene and how much it, it, have his character came out of that.
1: Almost all of it. You know, that boat's really there. And there is this abandoned lot somewhere in a strange corner of Red Hook. And there was a fishing boat in it. And I'd walk past it. It was kind of near the housing projects. And I always wondered about that boat You know, no one seemed to really be bothered about it, but I always thought it was really strange that there's a, you know, small boat fishing, not just a not a rowboat, but like a fishing boat in this lot. When I initially conceived of Cree's character, he was older. He was 25 and uh, really at loose ends. And then I realized that's just unfair. 25 and not having gone anywhere or achieved anything, just this unfair treatment of a character. So when I thought, when I made him younger, And then I had him on that boat. I realized he couldn't be his boat. It would have to be his father's boat. And then what happened to his father is sort of – the character, he was – he started to become real to me when I realized why he loved that boat and why he couldn't, you know, take it anywhere.
0: And his family is also very important. And I love the way that Cree is revealed in this book because when we meet him first, we kind of – It seems kind of a bit suspicious, but as we get to know him, I mean, he's just such a great character. So I'd like you to talk about creating that character plot arc. And one of the things I think you do very well is create tension for us as we get to know these characters and see our, you know, you play our relationship. As readers, we we pick up the book and we have relationships with the characters. And you do create a lot of tension by playing with that relationship.
1: Well, you know, Cree's family's difficult. He's had some major tragedies in his family, and his his mom, while being an incredibly loving mom, you know, is really wrapped up in her own world. So I really wanted Cree to be isolated, and I wanted him to be hemmed in by circumstance, which again is represented by the fact that he lives at Red Hook and he just can't quite visualize a life outside it. You know, no one has taught him how to what to do when high school is over, but he really is dreaming of escape and his dreams are he looks at the water every day and he wants to figure out a way to get out on that water because it's really stressful to live in Red Hook and see that water and see Manhattan and just have no idea at least for me I, I, there's you've water on three sides and it's you, you can't swim in it you can't you know float in it and you see tour boats go by and that's not something that people from Red Hook really experience so i guess i just wanted him He was a hard character to write because I wanted him to be trapped, but I wanted him to do something. And I think that was the hardest storyline for me to really resolve because you don't want him to suddenly, you know, how do you do justice to his character? Oh, he gets a job and he goes to college and everything is great. You know, Um, it was the hardest storyline to really come to a satisfying conclusion because I knew it would have to be a quiet resolution. And that's always the hardest to come up with.
0: Let's hear another reading from Visitation Street by Ivy Pocotta.
1: As he walks down Otsego Street, a cobbled alley with vacant lofts and abandoned lots, he feels the looseness of the evening. The hours that stretch before him feel pliant, as if they are waiting for him to shape them. He understands what keeps Gloria in Red Hook. It's not what is here now, but what was here back when. The history being buffed and polished away in the Longshoreman's Bar. As he crosses from this abandoned corner of the waterside back to the houses, he becomes aware of the layers that form the hook. The projects built over the frame houses, the pavement laid over the cobblestones, the lofts overtaking the factories, the grocery stores overlapping the warehouses, the new bars cannibalizing the old ones. The skeletons of forgotten buildings, the sugar refinery and the dry dock, surviving among the new concrete bunkers being passed off as luxury living. The living walking on top of the dead, the waterfront dead, the old mob dead, the drug war dead, everyone still there. A neighborhood of ghosts. It's not such a bad place, Cree thinks, if you look under the surface, which is where Gloria lives. The courtyards and the park are only half full, Cree doesn't recognize the kids on the benches, but he nods as he passes. They clock his bottle and nod back. He sits on a nearby bench and raises the 40 in an informal salute. He drinks and listens to the conversation that never opens up to him. No one notices when he walks off.
0: I I think you did a fabulous job, and, and... Let's talk on the other side about uh, Val. And one of the things I like, you do this a few times in the pros, you'll shift, it's, a, it's kind of a risky thing, but it really works. You shift into second person mm-hmm. with Val when you're doing... This closely observed third person, all of a sudden you'll get into this second person. And this is when she gets into these kind of rituals where she's making these if-then statements. I love these rituals.
1: It's funny. Um, It's something that I do. Um, And, you know, it's probably, as a former athlete, the worst thing you can do as a professional athlete is to be a victim of magical thinking. You know, if I hang the towels right, I will win my match. I would do it for things like that, really selfish, stupid stuff. So... I, tr- You know, I really was trying to write about Val's guilt about what happened on the raft or her struggling to come to terms with what happened on the raft. And I wanted to get inside her head without her telling us. So I used the second person because I really imagine that it's like an almost like rhythmic chant in her head. Like she's wishing she's wishing so hard to undo what happened that night or to rewind before they took the raft out. That it's like this mantra in her head. Every single thing she goes through in her life after that point, she is like, if if she does this, then this will happen. So she just can't get that if-then wishful thinking out of her head, and it becomes almost obsessive. And she's hearing almost hearing this voice in her head. And I thought just to as i said before i like the prose to mimic the inner voice of the character a little bit especially cuz you're switching so many times between characters in different chapters so i use that second person just to really explode her mind onto the page and i'm glad it worked cuz it's tricky <laughs> the first time i but the first time i wrote it i thought okay now i got it
0: well i really like that too, uh, that her vision of the world, that what you call the magical thinking, because I think that's something many of us are prone to, uh, maybe in lesser degrees. But and so I'd like you to talk about creating that perception, because in a sense, it's almost like she's haunting herself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely cripplingly beset by magical thinking and it is a terrible way to go through the day and I know it's silly but it also brings and imposes an order upon the world that I think is really interesting you know that everything you do does have a purpose and it does have a you know an equal and opposite reaction is the way I think about it you know so that magical thinking for her is just absolutely essential and inescapable and she just, She's a kid, and she no one's talking to her about what happened, which um, no one is helping her deal with her grief. So this is a plague in her head, and it is—it it starts as wishful thinking, and then it just becomes this all-encompassing, almost a paranoia, but—and eventually she breaks free of it, I think. She just—you know, it's just—for me, I think, an almost— post-traumatic stress reaction. And then it, it allows her not to let go of what happened, too, because everything is trying— she's driving towards resolving this tragedy. But
0: I really think uh, one of the things you do in this book, it's a very sensual book, but it's um, in that it's of the senses. You immerse this in all the senses. So I'd like you to talk about to using the, scent, the all five senses to create Red Hook.
1: Well, Red Hook does at certain times um, smell not so hot, and um, and it is a strange stagnant water stench that permeates the neighborhood, and you stop noticing it after a while, and it's not always there, but sometimes, especially in the summer, it, it's a little dodgy, and people who will visit say, how do you live here? And I said, I don't even notice it anymore. But I grew up not too far away from Red Hook in Brooklyn. I spent a lot of time outside in the summer playing on the street and playing stickball or actually not stoop ball, and, you know, summer had a particular smell in Brooklyn to me. You know, people would cook out, and it had a smell of, you know, the because wa- I also live near the water, the sort of water smell with people barbecuing, and the smell of barbecue in Brooklyn is not the smell of cooking meat. It's the smell of lighter fluid and cheap charcoal, and that reminds me of summer, but also one of the things I just absolutely loved when I was younger is we would sleep with the window open, and I could hear all these different noises going down the street. So you'd hear the ice cream truck that played Pop Goes the Weasel or The Entertainer. Or you'd hear someone playing, you know, cliche as it sounds, you know, jazz music coming out of another window, you know. Or someone, a passing car playing, you know, hip-hop. Or bicycles, you know, r- rolling up the over the asphalt or whatever. So there are all these different sounds. Sounds and smells of summer were just so ingrained in me. I just, it's the thing I miss the most about New York. And I, I love it's, not, it's different now. Um, there's not so much. People don't leave their windows open and let their lives out into the street. And I think you'd probably get arrested, in, at least in my neighborhood, for um, having a charcoal grill out on the street. But I really – those two were the most important senses for me. And I really thought that you couldn't – or at least for me, I couldn't write about summer without really almost dwelling on that. How your summer in New York – in Brooklyn, for me, was not just what was going on inside my house, but it was like the outside filtered in.
0: You mentioned sound, and I thought that's so important in this book. I think you do a really great job with sound. I mean, people, there are voices. People are hearing voices in their heads. Um, And Jonathan uh, Sprouse, who will talk about it more Greater length is a musician who hears um, music buried in noise, which is something I will admit I can hear. You can play the saw drone, and you can always hear kind of melodies and that kind of thing if you listen to enough weird music. So (laughs) I'd like you to talk about the way you use sound in, in the book to tell the story.
1: You know, well, as I said earlier, you know, about the summer and the noise. I start off in the beginning, you know, Val and June are just aware of all these noises going on outside their house. And, like, that's what's really driving them crazy is, like, they hear Val's sister Rita's party going on outside. And they hear, you know, the people having a barbecue. And they can hear the bar down the block where the older, you know, newcomers are drinking and carousing and having a good time. And for them, sound is, like, reminds them that they're really young and they're not – this world is not yet accessible to them. Red Hook has a lot of interesting noises. Um, I lived – there on the street corner that I describe in the book. I lived above the Greek diner or what's not a diner, Greek restaurant in the, that I describe in the novel. And it's funny, it was loud. It didn't keep me up, but there were so many different noises that were so distinct. The bus. So I use sound to try to paint the picture of Red Hook. The bus had this very distinct hydraulic wheeze. It would park in front of your house and then you just hear it like send the hydraulic brakes would release. And then when it was ready to go again, they would inflate and it made the strange su- sound. There was always, someone was always opening or closing an iron roll gate. And there were also cobblestones. So there was a lot of rattling. It was just a neighborhood of, the, of a lot of interesting noises that were in very close proximity to one another. And then there was sometimes you could hear the water, which was a really interesting combination with these sort of more industrial noises and... There are a lot of people out on the streets talking all the time, and there was a methadone clinic up the street from my house, so people would get off the bus at eight in the morning, and you'd have this strange parade of people who needed to get their methadone sort of wandering around my block. So there was just this odd symphony that I would hear on a hourly basis.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Jonathan Sprouse. He's kind of the first character, one of the early characters we meet. He's hanging out, hangs out at one bar, plays piano at another, and also teaches. Tell us about creating this character.
1: Well, when I lived in Red Hook, in the apartment across the street from me, which would be above the bar, there was a man who knows who he is. And he is a musician. He was a really accomplished musician. He was an assistant to Philip Glass, and he was really smart. And he moved there after I'd been in Reddick for a year and made a strange entry into the community. He just always said the wrong thing. And always drank a little too much, which was hard because everyone drank a lot. And he um, was a musician. And I started to, you know, when I started to write, I wrote about people I knew. And not about them, but I used them as templates. Eventually, I mean, I don't know this guy very well. So I made, I started to invent his character But because I was it was a coincidence that he became a musician because I was so interested in the sounds of the neighborhood that I thought a musician would be the natural filter for all of this, you know, oral information. He's just really based on so many people I know and also is emblematic of a fear of the person I would become, that you could really, it it would just be so easy to mess up like that. It'd be so easy to have all this potential as a kid and then, you know, squander it. I mean, I felt like I never did that, but I felt that, you know, it could have happened quite easily. Jonathan is, you know, I grew up in New York. I went to private school. I knew a lot of rich kids, not necessarily from my neighborhood, but from the Upper West and Upper East Side of Manhattan, who just were given everything and didn't take advantage of it or squandered it or mistook having a good time and enjoying themselves for a worthwhile life plan. And I really wanted to get inside the head of someone who was really aware of that. And so that's where Jonathan came from. And I really like him and I really feel sorry for him. And you know, a lot of people say, oh, what?" I hate it when readers say, oh, that drunk music teacher. I say, he's not a drunk. <laughs> he might drink a lot, but he's my one of my favorite people in the book. And, um, you know, I really feel for him.
0: Uh, I do, too. And I think you do a great job uh, in terms of uh, managing the reader-character relationship. That becomes, I think, one of the really complicated reader uh character relationship and our feelings towards him as the book progresses. And it's an interesting, as I say, you have a a fascinating sense of plot in terms of what what, a lot of what moves the book for me is how I feel about these characters. I want to find out what they're going to do that's going to change the way I feel about them.
1: Well, Jonathan's interesting because he... Does immoral things, but he's sort of for me the moral compass of the book at the same time. So it was interesting to have somebody who does some things that are quite questionable. Though his intentions are completely noble, he just can't help himself and he just does the wrong thing a few times. But you know, he for me is the book's like voice of redemption, and I thought that was sort of an interesting twist to have someone that gets involved in some activities that you think, well, that is not socially or morally acceptable. But you're really, at least I am, rooting for him to not save the day, but to really give the book a moral backbone.
0: Well, I I think he does that. And, and that, what's nice is that the way it's done it's it's so this book all the characters in this book are, are what I would describe as very prickly they're kind of they have a bunch of contradictions in them that remind me of the way real people behave because real people are not particularly consistent.
1: Yeah, you know and the, yeah, the characters are everyone has sort of an outer self they present to the world and an inner self that they keep to themselves and one of the things that I found interesting is, at well, when I would hang out at this bar, you know, there was sort of this fake persona that everyone would would you know the good time people you know you're having a great time at night and but in the morning are these people really your friends and that was something a question that i i'm not sure i it was retained into this final draft of the book but with jonathan who we're speaking about a second ago the inconsistency of friendship was something i really wanted to look at because he missed he thinks the people in the bar are his friends initially and they're not because I always struggled to think, well, we're hanging out at night. It's 1, 2 in the morning. We're having a really good time. But in the morning, are we friends? And that was something that I always thought about. And I wanted to use, that was the place where I think the idea of inconsistency really came from.
0: Uh- one of the characters who's who's particularly consistent actually is is Fadi. I I love this guy. You have a lot of fun with him. So talk about creating this character. Was there somebody like that in the neighborhood too?
1: Yeah, um, there was that bodega across the street from my house, and it's called Hebas, I think. And there was a really nice guy there who just he always knew your name and your order. And I realized I didn't know his name. And I was quite shocked to discover his name is Cliff, um, which I really didn't expect it being a Lebanese bodega with many Lebanese employees, Cliff and his brother. And So I would go there on a regular basis, and I really didn't know him very well, and he was really nice. But one of the things I noticed at that particular bodega was there was a bulletin board with community notices, and those notices were really strange. You know, some of them would be for like in-home hair braiding. Some of them would be for dog-walking. But then there were notices for things like holistic healing and Reiki sessions, and I just thought it was a really strange cross-section of the community. You would get, like, drug and alcohol counseling or social services, and then these sort of very outrageous things like at-home private holistic healing and i thought well this is really where in my mind on this bulletin board is where the neighborhood meets and so when i started to write about fadi i had him looking at that bulletin board and he makes it into a newsletter and he starts to believe that by that his store is this actually ac- is this ac- access for red hook which it probably isn't but it's all in his mind. So he's you know there aren't a lot of lebanese people who live in red hook in fact i don't think there are any so he's an outsider who works there and i thought it was kind of interesting to have an outsider's take on it
0: well, too, I think one of the things you do is you use the the some of the notes that are left behind for him to put in his newsletter, which he publishes. He's an interesting portrait of a journalist, a completely untrained uh, journalist. and But you use the notes that are left behind as a means of kind of telling a story and creating a bigger picture than is necessarily contained directly in the book. And I really like that. That uh, what you did with that.
1: Thanks. You know, that's a true device that I felt... I felt that I wanted to have a better sense of the community and I wanted to do two things with that. One, I wanted to show that Fadi has no idea what he's doing and he's really trying to... You know, he sees his bodega as this, like, crossroads of Red Hook and it's just not. It just happens to be located in this corner. And, you know, of course, it's a bodega, so people who are the more affluent members of Red Hook, the older, white, former longshoremen people go there and people from the projects come there... But the newsletter was a way for me to sort of demonstrate some of the anxieties that I suspected were brewing under the surface in Red Hook. Fadi thinks his newsletter has a lot more, you know, significance and meaning than it does. You know, I wanted to just a lot of things happened in Red Hook that i was really interested in when i lived there and there was no place for them in the book so i thought the newsletter would be a way just to really show some of those like foibles of you know a small community that stays up too late is kind of cut off is a little bit at odds with itself
0: and this is a community that in the book at least is literally waiting for its ship to come in
1: quite literally so the queen Mary, when i lived in when when i lived in red hook in 2000 six, I think, or maybe it's two thousand and five. There was this absolute hullabaloo about the fact that the Queen Mary was now going to dock at the Red Hook Cruise Terminal, the newly built Red Hook Cruise Terminal. And it was at the end of my street, no one had ever been down there. I mean it, it didn't seem like a very exciting place, the Red Hook Cruise Terminal. But the neighborhood was just going crazy. The ship was going to come in, and the New York Times, and the Daily News, and the New York Post. And even the TV stations were doing all these stories about how Red Hook was about to have its moment. And this cruise ship was going to come in. And so businesses started to change their names, you know. And people were very excited about the cruise ship. Finally, Red Hook was going to have the shipping era was back, coming back. And then the cruise ship docked and nothing happened. And it was this horrible letdown. It docked at 5 in the morning. A bunch of my friends went down to greet it and were on the local news, uh, quite drunk. Um, The newscaster had to cut away from the interview. Then nothing happened. The ship was there. It it was very strange because suddenly, like, a city block worth of skyscrapers or not quite, buildings had arrived and blocked the view, kind of cast a shadow into the neighborhood. But what none of us knew was that the way the traffic pattern was going to be arranged for the buses and taxis and passengers embarking and disembarking was it was going to be funneled out of the neighborhood without going to Red Hook. So they just kind of veered the traffic around. So it went underneath the expressway, over the expressway immediately. And um, nobody came. And, you know, the only people who would come were the crew, and they only wanted to eat. A lot of the crew, for some reason, that first docking were, um, I think they are Filipino. They might have been somewhere else in Southeast Asia. But there was one Chinese restaurant, and that got a lot of business. But you, when the cruise ships come in, the only change you see is a bunch of policemen guard all the streets in Red Hook, like we're all going to do something to the cruise ship. and But it didn't bring any change.
0: Was that the bulletproof Chinese they <laughs> you Yes, it's the
1: bulletproof Chinese. Um, that's kind of common in New York. And rougher neighborhoods are neighborhoods where the owners of the store might think as rough. You order your food through a bulletproof window. And they it's like the post office. And they slide it through a slot. Oh, wow. It, it doesn't was... bode well for the um, quality of the food.
0: No, uh, I would guess.
1: Liquor so. stores do the same thing, too.
0: I love Wren. And... Does that P- he's he's a uh, graffiti artist, and I'm wondering there's one particularly really striking piece of graffiti that you describe in there. Does that exist?
1: No, not at all. Um, oh, darn, know,
0: I was gonna go see.
1: I know, <laughs> you know, that is that's sort of the moments in the book where I allow my imagination to take over, and well, I mean. Obviously, the whole book is my imagination, because none of this really happened. But um, that was the part where there's absolutely no basis in reality. And it's kind of fun to write stuff like that when you're sort of – you know, writing about Red Hook was hard because, you know, I know a lot of these people, a lot of my friends will recognize some element of themselves or stuff we did or in the community. But I wanted some moments where it was truly mine and no one could say I got it wrong. And Ren's character from – on all levels and everything he does and everything – he gets involved in, and everything he paints is a hundred percent invented, and that was really fun and liberating to sort of. That's where I put my stamp on my Red Hook, because this is not this is not everybody's Red Hook. So Redden was a way for me to like plant my flag and say, okay, this is my book, this is my Red Hook.
0: I really liked him, and I thought that he's he's another character who we, with whom we have a very complicated relationship, and. That our what's nice is our relationship with Ren is filtered through our relationship with Cree because they have a relationship. And there's a lot of tension between us and the two of them. And, and so I'd like you to talk about crafting that kind of uh, the vibe of, of how that works out. Because I think that you do a really good job of keeping the reader involved with how – being aware of what the reader's feelings are about your characters.
1: Well, you know, I um, attended a lecture given by two of my favorite writing teachers of all time. And um, they it was a lecture on Charles Dickens and keeping secrets. And it really made an impression on me that, you know, Dickens has so many secrets that he keeps from the reader and all his characters have secrets. So um, I wanted to give one of my characters a secret. And it's ran. I'm not going to give it away, don't worry. And um, I think that allowed me to really engage, well, myself or the reader with his character because something's off and I was trying to until we find out what it is use language and use his interest in Cree to sort of you know, pique people's curiosity about them. And, you know, the other thing that I really liked in their relationship is Cree is lonely and Ren comes along at the right time and he just gets it. And C- Ren knows Cree better than Cree knows himself. So that was also interesting, but also because you can't quite put your finger on Ren's character and he um, sort of infiltrates very different parts of the story. I wanted him sort of this, he's the only character, the main character doesn't have a chapter. Um, you know, uh, he doesn't have any uh, a close third-person perspective. So I tried to use him as a way to sort of manipulate people's emotions. <laughs> I guess it worked. <laughs> but his relationship with Cree is kind of special because I don't think guys necessarily befriend each other so easily as girls do. So I wanted they want to be friends, but it's tricky because they can't quite admit it to themselves.
0: Uh, talk about the manor—is the manor real?
1: It was until they put an IKEA there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's I think they that's put the some, IKEA. that's most there. horrifying
0: thing I've heard in a long time.
1: It's hard for me to get my geography correct, but it is right on they tore it down and they either put the IKEA there or it's on the lot next to where they put the IKEA. Once they put the IKEA in Red Hook, the geography changed a little bit of there was a sugar refinery and the Todd shipyard and the Bones Manor were all in a row. And I'm so embarrassed to say that when they raised them and I can look at a map and I can walk there. It's so different now that it's hard for me to put those things in, you know, I know where the sugar refinery was, because that's right next to the Beard Street Pier. But the Bones Manor, Bones Manor is real. There's a documentary about it you can watch called A Hole in a Fence, which is really good. And I believe they put the IKEA either on it or next to it or so.
0: Could you talk about one of the characters who I think is really interesting is the Wino.
1: Oh, I, yeah!
0: I have a lot. You have a lot of fun with with our little wino, and I. And from the very first description you give of him, of well, I think a nut brown face, it's really a, a kind of a, a charming jerk.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a little wino who used to hang out underneath my house, and you know, be quite a pest. I didn't know him very well, so I would see this guy, and I kind of forgot a lot of details about him. But it was fun to invent a you know a, a a character who was just drunk all the time or you know bothersome and I, I like the idea that he harasses people for alcohol. I don't know why. I just thought it was, you know, the last thing anyone should do is go into a bodega and demand a free beer. But I just thought it was kind of an interesting uh, character trait of his. Especially, well, he's a drunk. He's a neighborhood character, and he, uh, you know, he drinks with everybody. He drinks with Crees uncle over in the projects. He in the gar. He hangs out in Bones Manor, but he also is befriended by, you know, the the greek likes him so he's not all bad but he was a riot to write you know and it was kind of fun i don't actually speak spanish so it was fun to write him speaking spanish cuz i could get it wrong cuz he you know he's not speaking properly anyway so <laughs> it was just a, it was a blast though the story about him painting the square of pavement orange is a true it really did happen and
0: really yeah
1: <laughs> not that wasn't, that wasn't a good day in my apartment when i woke up downstairs to see that the little wino had painted the sidewalk orange and i couldn't leave the house <laughs>
0: One of the things I think that um, is interesting is the division in Red Hook uh, between the projects and, and the, the houses. So talk about uh, creating that, and the way you the way you uh, create it for us offers again, it's another place of friction and tension. But it's also a place that the the coexistence of the two of them sets it apart from any other place.
1: Yeah. So um, I want to be really clear about this. It's not like there's a lot of racial tension in Red Hook. You know, it's not it's not like Bedford-Stuyvesant and do the right thing. um, Spike Lee's movie. It's physically divided. There are housing projects on one side and then there's this tough white waterfront community. Well, that's sort of fallen on hard times on the other side. So and between them is a park. And so the housing projects have their own sort of businesses that are associated with the housing projects. And then the water side, which has become gentrified, you know, there's people like myself, artisans, shopkeepers, you know, artists, people who like to drink in bars and, you know, some vestige of old dock worker families have been there forever um, on the other side. And they coexist, but they don't interact very much. So the water side has its own old timers day at the VFW. And the Red Hook houses have its own old old timers' day celebration, which is when people who've been there forever, who return, have a big party. It just an you know you don't. It just interested me how these two neighborhoods coexisted. People, when you talk about Red Hook, everyone talks about the two Red Hooks, and I just the bar was the only place where you would see a little bit of overlap. The bar, the Dockyard, which is called the bait and tackle in the real world. (laughs) It was one place where it was sort of, you would see different people from the community. Not so many people from the housing projects, but a few would come in. And so I just loved how these two sides of the neighborhood completely, barely overlapped. Recently, there's been more overlap. When the Fairway supermarket opened, it made a huge effort to employ people from the housing project, which was great. And there's the community garden in Red Hook called Added Value Farm, which is run by kids from the housing projects, but set up by people on the water side. So there's starting to be a little more overlap, but it's just interesting.
0: Fadi has a, a note about the, the green project. Oh, he does? Yeah, about it, the garden. Yeah. yeah stealing the oh, stop stealing the plants. Stop stealing the plants. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. The sad thing about that garden is now the food is grown in the shade of Ikea, but um, that's a great project, you know, and the guy who runs it is a real amazing guy. He lives on, you know, on Van Brunt Street and has started up this giant garden and a couple of the restaurants in Red Hook use their products. So
0: Well, I really enjoyed my uh visit to Visitation <laughs> Street. I'm wondering what you have in store next for us.
1: Well, you know, I'm not exactly sure. I'm not really comfortable talking about my work until I, I could barely describe this book until I'd written 24 chapters, you know, I didn't. And then I didn't even describe it as a mystery. That was came later. So, um I'm not sure I, you know, it's tricky cuz I love to write about place and I've told I do it quite well, but I live in Los Angeles and it's a really fraught topic writing about place in LA. Everyone just gets all up in arms about writing about LA. So, I'm going to have to figure out something else. <laughs> but I do want to write something that still, I'm sure everything I write will still have a sense of sort of like some kind of like unknowable lingering under the surface of things. So that's one thing I know for sure.
0: I've been speaking with Ivy Pakoda. Her new book is Visitation Street. Thank you for joining me, Ivy.
1: Thank you so much for having me.